This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. Anne here with a quick request for you before we start the show. Gabe, my producer, and I are always trying to come up with ways to improve Safe Space Radio. And one thing that would really help us do that is to hear from you about what's working for you about the show and what you'd like us to try. If you could take a minute to answer a short five-question survey after you've heard this show on Refugee Women in Maine, we would be so grateful. You can find it by visiting safespaceradio.com and clicking on the button that says Survey. It won't take long, and it'll help us keep pushing the show in new and exciting directions. Thank you in advance for your response, and thanks for listening. This is WMPG. My name is Anne Hallward. I'm a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the last show in our series on refugee women in Maine. We wanted to end this series with an interview with a woman from Iraq, as Iraqis are one of the largest groups of New Mainers. My guest today is Sarah Mahdi, who arrived in Maine three years ago with a bachelor's degree in information technology from her university in Baghdad. Currently, she's working as an Arabic-English translator with Maine Med and the House of Languages. Sarah volunteers also with Partners for World Health, and she's getting her second bachelor's degree in human biology in preparation for med school. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Sarah. Hi. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with life at home in Baghdad before you came here. Tell me a little bit about what you were up to and kind of what your day-to-day life was like before you decided that you were going to have to leave. Well, um, back home, um, after I graduated from my um, school, I started working. I used to work with a company before I came um, that is uh, dealing with medical uh, equipment. So I used to work as a, a sales follow-up with hospitals and, and labs. Um, so my daily life was like work, going home, spending some time with my family and um, and so on. And reading, of course, because that's my hobby. And then after that, of course, the situation started to be really, really bad. And we did we haven't like even th- considering leaving. But after getting this the situation was really bad, then we start thinking. And when did it become really bad for you? Well, it was bad from the beginning, to be honest, uh, after the war, I would say after 2003, um, especially um, start to be really intense in 2006. Uh, six. That was like a really bad year. Um, what made that year bad for you? It, the situation outside the house, like in the street, people get killed in every single second, everywhere. And you never know when is the next explosion going to be. So it, may, it might be like right next to you, in your way to work. So I, it was really bad to the level that you would, li- I, w- I used to leave my house and look and say, am I going to come back? I don't know. You'd never know. And at that time, who were you living with? Uh, my family, uh, my mother and my sister and my brother. And how much would you talk about that? Like, would you get together and say, you know, can we stand this? How would a family conversation about that go? Well, we, we as a family, very strong and we just say we're going to do whatever we can to protect ourselves, of course. Some areas were more dangerous than the others, so we try to avoid that area. And we try like to pray and just to hope for the best. That's, that's all what we can do. 
basically. You just hope for the best, be careful. Obviously, being careful is not going to help in some situations, but you try. Like, as I mentioned, if you know that street is dangerous or whatever, you try not to go there. But you're still going to, at some point, have to go that like area or this area. But you'll go and just hope for the best. Yeah. So the war began in 2003. At that time, when it first was starting... You know, we saw pictures on television here and, you know, we had words like shock and awe and, you know, really horrible, horrible photographs of a degree of, you know, explosive power that was hard to imagine. What was your feeling at the time about the American invasion? How how was it received by people in your community and your family? Well, at the beginning after the war, directly, everybody loved the idea. Oh, really? Most, like, I'll say 90% of the population in Iraq loved the idea of, like, having, like, because removing their previous regime of Saddam Hussein will uh, result from that war. So even all the, the, the sacrifices or things, people start focusing on, like, okay, we're going to get rid of him. So it is okay. So everybody welcomed the change that will happen after the war. And it was a good year after the year after the war. Everything was fine, basically. And then after that, things started to get messy. Uh-huh. And how do you understand that? What, what made them get messy? Well, um, a lot of people, like too many bad people in the same location, because the regime wasn't there, there was no one in, um, um, no one ruling that time. So that made it easier for people like, to kidnap uh, somebody and ask for money. That was like a daily activity. And even the police officers, like, you see few of them, but they are they are afraid also of their lives. Because by that time, that messy time that I mentioned, even police officers get killed all the time. For a women, especially, um, to get kidnapped and maybe raped, you never know. So you have to protect yourself. You have to have, left, like, any kind of tools in your bag to help you protecting yourself. And I used to carry things, sharp things. What did you carry? I used to carry a razor blade with me, blades, a bunch of them actually in my bag, um, just to, um, in case something happened. If I got ordered a cab, maybe the cab driver going to be a bad person want to kidnap me. I needed to be able to react and not just, like, scream. It sounds like this went on for a long time because you didn't leave the country till like 2012, 2013, right? 2012, yeah. 2012. <laughs> but you applied to leave earlier than that. Tell me about the process of, of coming to that moment of realizing we have to leave. My brother used to work with the American embassy in Baghdad. And people who worked in the American embassy... Many people get killed for that only reason. So he, when he started working there, he loved the job and everything. But usually people in general come back home by 4 or 5. He would come back at 9 or 8 p.m. People start to ask, why is he coming late? So even your neighbors, you cannot trust them. They can watch you. They can report you to some other like gang or something. They would have to kidnap you because they know they pay well so they will like try to kidnap you have the money but they kill you anyway because you betrayed them so it's it's very messy as I mentioned and my brother realized that we need to leave and then we start the process uh, it took a long time um, uh, waiting was like um, not a fun thing to have like I, I wanted to leave the minute we applied but that's not possible was how long possible? did you wait 
uh, more than three years. And um, during these three years, uh, we saw, we had like series of uh, interviews, security check, and um, for um, everything we had in the past. And during the interviews, we talk about everything, about work and about our um, social life and everything you have to mention in the interview and explain why we are in a dangerous situation. There's a lot of talk now in this country about background checks and whether they're careful enough or whether they're too careful. Were there questions they asked you in the interview that surprised you that just felt like, well, why do you want to know that? Well, to be honest, for me, I didn't think any question was not supposed to be asked. If, if someone doesn't have anything in his past, or uh, they wouldn't mind any question. But I, there was no surprising questions, no. So I'm confused about one other thing. You said at first, you know, in 2003, when the U.S. first invaded that there was a sense of hope for what this would mean in terms of replacing Hussein. And then you said, you know, by the end, anyone who worked for, with the Americans was seen as a traitor. What happened to change that view of the Americans? Well, I think it's people thought that by the time the Americans will invade Iraq and they would change the regime, everything going to be like heaven. That's not going to happen. That's not a reasonable thing to think about. So I guess for people who hoped this way, they felt like, okay, where is the security they, they, that we wanted? Or where is the, the hope that we thought that, that we'll have at the beginning or after the war? So that, that, that I, th- I guess that this is what made the change. I see. So I want to come back to you. There you are with your family. You're going through these background checks. You've decided you want to leave and you want to leave now. How did you find out when you when your application was actually approved, and how long did you have between finding out and actually leaving? They will put you on hold. You will never know the result till you get the time of the travel. Oh, really? So you'll never know. I st- we start to lose the hope of leaving. We thought, okay, we're not leaving. And then they called. Uh, actually, they text me. <laughs> they texted you. <laughs> they texted me. For me, it was a text. And they said, um, hi, uh, you have a travel. In the text, it was in Arabic and says, hi, you have a travel in 10 days. And that, that that's um, the location. You'll meet someone. Someone will call you a day before. You have this way, like um, two bags and one carry on and other details. And in 10 days, I had to like put my life in two bags. And those were like the most intense 10 days in my life. It was super weird. Like, am I happy or sad because I'm leaving? I wanted to leave. So here I am leaving. I got the chance. But at the same time, I was super sad because I'm leaving my life, my entire life, work, friends, my house, everything. But at the same time, I said, okay, this is what I wanted, and I should be happy. During that time of waiting, did it feel to you like... Really, you deserve to leave. Like, you sh- you should be able to have this. Or did you feel like you'd be so lucky to get it? Like, what was your what was your own feeling about the right to live in safety? Well, I always say living in fear is not living at all. And um, despite that, I loved the situation. I loved that, like, of course, your friends, your family. So you love that environment. But I, I, I kept thinking all the time that this is not the way that life's supposed to be. Holding a blade all the time just because I'm riding a cab in the middle of the day. 
that's not what's supposed to happen. The funny thing, which is funny and weird at the same time, that we applied because my brother is in an dangerous situation for working for the embassy. And we are here, me, my sister, my mother, and my brother get rejected. Your brother got rejected? Yes. On what grounds? Well, they sent him an email saying that your kids get rejected for coming to the United States. And there is reason number seven, which is not clear. I even took it to a lawyer and said, what is that reason? And you wouldn't be able to talk to someone to, to explain the reason to you. I called. I did everything I could. No one gave me like an explanation why he got rejected. And they gave him a chance to appeal. And he appealed. Um, and the appeal sent to them more than a year ago, so a year and a half ago, and we still haven't heard anything. It's confusing because you think he took a risk to to serve the United States. He you put think, his own yeah. life at risk. Yeah, that's the weird thing. Our case was based on him working for the United States yes. government. Yes, and as a result of that, we are all in a dangerous situation. It's because of him. And they accepted our story and accepted our like case to come, and he got rejected. How is it for you then to be here in relative safety and to know that he's still there? Like, what what is that for you? It's hard to enjoy being here, and at the same time, the person who actually got you here is not here. You feel like you feel like at some point it's, it's unfair. Like, I'm here, safe, starting my life, doing what I want, and he's still there, hoping that they will review the APL and finish it. And I've been here, like, three years. So it's been three years from coming, three years for applying. So he'd been waiting for six years and still not even got an answer. Are you scared for his safety? Of course, yes. Yeah. Do you have any sense of how common your experience is? Like, were all your friends trying to leave? How common was it that people were trying to get out of the country? Well, many. I would say many. Not all. Some of people wouldn't accept the idea of starting from zero. Uh, especially with educated people. Because if they have to come, they have to study all over again. And older people also, they live their whole, their whole life. It's hard to change the environment. Even if it is bad, they say, okay, I'm not leaving. I'm not starting from zero. And um, for people who I know who wants to leave and succeeded with that, a few, yeah. Where did they go and where did they stay? Well, um, they stayed in Turkey. I have like a few friends who did that. They stayed in Turkey for um, three years. Some of them stayed for four years and then uh, relocated to Australia. and uh, Australia? Yeah. And are they? is that where they live now? Is it Australia? Yeah, I have a, few, a couple of friends live in Australia, yeah. And when they were in Turkey, were they in a actual refugee camp or were they staying with people that they knew there? Yeah, so if you, they have someone, one of like one of them had like uh, a relative living there, so they lived with with them, and um, some stayed like in an apartment. They worked and paid for the rent and everything, so that they would stay there for a while because they know it's not going to be a few months; it's going to be years. So they had to find a source of money so they would work and pay for things and apply and wait. So you have this experience now where you came here as an immigrant. Some of your friends became refugees to other countries. Some of your friends stayed. Are you in close touch 
with your old friends? Yes, on a daily basis, actually. Our, like, the friendship between us is, of course, it's changed. We used to spend so much time together. And um, time difference is, is also a challenge for that kind of uh, friendship. And, um, yeah, we talk about the differences and we hope that one day we'll meet in any country, but just to meet. And it's hard because I think the challenge, like the, the sad part of it is um, you cannot meet them all like before. If I wanted to see one friend, I have to go to go like to Paris. Uh, if I want to see another friend, I have to go to Australia. So it's not we're never going to gather again. Um, I have friends. I'm so lucky to have two of my closest friends in the United States, one in Texas and the other one in California. So I still can visit them. I visited one of them last summer, sorry, last winter in Texas. So it's, those are easier to see. But as I mentioned, it's never going to be a group. It's going to be always a single person you go and see and come back. Are there complicated feelings in the group around sort of who was luckier than, than another person, like who ended up in a safer situation? Is that something that can get talked about or does that feel really hard to even approach? Well, we we don't talk about that, but as as long as you are out of the like out of Iraq, so you're out of the danger situation, you're safe. So any country you end up with is better. I still have friends waiting back home, and they keep asking me about what should I do, and they are eager to learn about, about the culture and and things like because it's completely different. So sometimes I try to give them a heads up. What are you warning them about? <laughs> it's a funny thing. It's like not that um, important, but it's sometimes we talk about it because, like back home, everybody um, go to work. Like when you leave in the morning, everybody dressed up like completely with makeup. If it's a girl, it's makeup and hair done, everything. So if it is a guy, like uh, they would like put perfumes, dress up really nice. All of the people. So I keep telling them, when you come in here, you have to stop doing that. Sometimes I open like a camera, like Skype with them. And I used to put more makeup back home or done my hair. Sometimes like I would, like, I would do my hair. Then my friends say, did you go to work like that? <laughs> they say, it's okay here. It's okay. I look fine. <laughs> so I tried to give them heads up about that. Is that like kind of things. a break for you to not have to spend so much time in the morning? Well, no, no. It, it was fine. The... I didn't have any culture shock. I don't know why, but the minute that I entered the United States, I took like three days to know, oh, okay, so I need to do that, okay, lower the makeup, okay, so fine with that, okay. And all the other things, differences, like the post office, we don't use the post office back home that much. Here, like, you have to go basically every day to, to mail something to do. So all these what differences... What do you do at home if you don't use the post office? Um, it's actually mostly either electronic, either scan it and send it to you on the Internet, or I come to you personally, I give it to you, the paper. The, the, the mail is not that active. Before we shift uh, completely away from your life in Iraq, I do want to ask you about your experience living there as a young woman. Americans have a lot of ideas about what it is to be a woman in Iraq. And I think we often have perceptions that um, women there are, you know, not allowed as much access to education or as much public voice. And, um, you know, there, there are many stereotypes. And I wondered if you could tell me from your experience what the reality of life is 
as a woman in Iraq? Um, of a certain education and a certain class, because obviously that will affect it. Yeah. For um, the educational part, um, women actually have the access and they study and everything. I feel that it's... it's um, so many like misinformed people about that and as you said stereotyping but I lived there all the classes that I took mostly women and and you were studying information technology so you're yeah computer systems so yeah on. and even for working like some people will say oh you're not allowed to work back home no I, we are allowed anywhere you go any company you go even um, a government facility you'll see most of the people are working are women so it's 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 something that people need to like to know that this is not the situation there, especially with education. You ha- back home, like the minimum educational thing that a woman or anyone will have is a bachelor. Everybody having a bachelor in something. It's not acceptable that a woman or a man would just stay with the high school. That that's something like you rarely you're gonna see. I had like the other day a friend of mine, she said, oh, women drive in your country? Yes. <laughs> Half of my friends driving cars, but it's so crowded. So it's not encouraging for you to drive. <laughs> so when you got here, were there changes or differences in women's roles here that you did notice? Um, I, well, I noticed that um, women here more um, in some other jobs, like like a bus driver, you will see it's really rare to see a woman driving a bus back home. Yeah, it's mostly like other kind of jobs. But here, like, I, I noticed and I loved it. <laughs> when you tell people here that you're from Iraq, what are some of the kind of comments or questions that you hear again and again? Um, some of the comments that I hear is apologizing. I had quite a few people who approached me and they th- they know that I'm from Iraq and they apologize about the war and we are sorry and and I try and keep trying like to say you don't need to apologize it's it happened and it's not you and it had to happen so I tried to talk to them about like how necessary the war was and despite that of the sacrifices that had to be made by that time why do you say it was necessary if it wasn't for the war in 2003, the Saddam's regime wouldn't leave. They wouldn't. Even if he dies, his son would have been the president, and that would be even worse than him. So everybody knew that this will happen unless some big, huge thing will change that, and that was the war. In this country, you know, so much of the discussion about the war was about whether or not Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And the whole kind of notion of regime change to remove Saddam was almost seen as secondary. And then when it was discovered that there weren't weapons of mass destruction, there was a lot of anger here that that the war was seen as unnecessary, that it was seen as based on a lie. So when, when I hear you say the war was necessary... There's a way that it's um, confusing. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah. When you think about the weapons that they're supposed to find, but they didn't find it. Yes, for that side, and many people died from both countries, from Americans' troops and from Iraqis, and it's 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 a sad thing. A war, there is no winning in a war. No one wins in a war. But the thing is, 
the situation was bad before the war. And people who lived there would easily explain to you about how bad it was, but nobody even allowed to talk about it. If you talk, you get killed. That's what, what used to be. So it's not, it wasn't like we were safe and everything. And then the war happened and then everything collapsed. No, it wasn't like that. It was bad, then the war, then another kind of bad. So, yeah, yeah that's the thing. I understand now you work as a translator for yes. many different agencies. How has your experience as a translator shaped your understanding of what it's like for other immigrants and refugees to create a new life here? Of course, everybody has um, their own story, own situation. But yeah, it's, this, it's basically the same. They've been in dangerous location and came in hopes and... And I loved I loved that job especially because I I get to help them to adapt to um, the new life. Um, they sometimes they even bring mail for me to read and and I loved that I loved these experiences um, that I can actually just do something teeny tiny something but that help because you know not everybody gonna have the same experience or the same um, adaptation to a new life. I was lucky to adapt really quickly. And I think part of it because I, I knew how to speak English before I arrived. So I didn't have that issue. So I keep, t- I keep like trying to help with that part, saying refer them to classes because they, they are eager to learn. So you mentioned, you know, some people, especially without the language, have trouble adapting. Can you tell me a story about how that might look? Yeah, so like so, like they bring like a mail for a specific thing, and someone read it to them, saying, "Oh, this is a ticket from you have to pay," and it's actually like a, just commercial or whatever. It's like an advertisement. Yeah, it's for something. So they misunderstand that, so they come seeking help, saying, "Is that true?" Or like a ticket, they think they will go to prison. Some I remember once the a guy bring brought a ticket, a parking ticket. He got in his car. And he couldn't understand the things written. He said, I'm going to jail. I said, no, just take it, money. You can go and pay it. That's it. So this kind of like misunderstanding due to language barrier, and, and they seek help, asking, am I going to do that? Someone told me that if I receive a ticket, I have to go to court. They will take me to prison. I said, no. Yeah. What about in the schools? Are schools sending home letters to parents in languages other than English at this point? Some. Some are not. Uh, I because we do I do work also with the case workers or case managers so we go to house visits and they usually if they know we are coming so they stack some mail and letters from the school because they know an interpreter coming so I would ask the case worker or the care provider asking like permission to read it for them because they are waiting for me just please read this and I would do that and and I would write in Arabic like next to it what they want so that when we leave they can take care of it. What a great service. Yeah. We would go into a play as a house, especially if it's a client, we go to them regularly. Like we go like today and we have an appointment next week or next month. So they know we are coming. So they collect things, letters or uh, brochures or whatever they need information, especially sent from school for their children for a certain event or and they are they are some some of them would be afraid is it something bad is it something good and they are eager to know 
What is it? So that when they know that we are coming and they, they keep it on a side and when we come, they show it to me and we have like five minutes at the end of the appointment or at the beginning and I would read it for them. They would feel relieved. Oh, okay, it's an event. We'll go. <laughs> uh-huh. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that feels really important for you that you want to say about your experience being here or that something that you want um, old Mainers to understand? Um, well, I would say that um, people who come in here and travel, some people thinks, uh, think that they come here and they're happy and they just want to come and, and like invade Maine or invade the United States. That is not the thing. People here because they have to come. The United States is not obligated to hold them, I know. But they had to leave. It's not a choice. Like, they want to leave, yes. But it's not an happy event. No one wants to change their environment completely. Like, I, I was glad that I came, and I'm more than happy to live here and to pursue the dream that I want. But you kind of want to, but you are forced to do it. That's why they are here. It's not, they didn't choose. They had to leave because they want to survive. Yeah. Sarah, Mahdi, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you and to hear your story. Thank you. A quick reminder to please take a moment and go to our website, safespaceradio.com, and click on survey to give us your feedback about this show. If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio, or you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including the earlier series we did on Somali immigrants in Maine. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Echoes of Congo Square.